Deuteronomy. Hope you're all there. Deuteronomy. Um, and so, like we saw there tonight, we're, we're going to be covering the last book of the Torah, last book of the, the Pentateuch. Torah simply means law or teaching, and that's what we really see in these first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is the law being given, this teaching of God that's very foundational, very instrumental. Now the name Deuteronomy comes from the Greek word used in the Septuagint, it means second law. Now that might be a little bit misleading for some because we understand we're not getting a secondary or a new law, what we are seeing is a repetition, a reminder of the law that's already being given. So that's why we're going to be moving through this whole book of Deuteronomy, 34 chapters. We're going to move through it all in one night because a lot of the stuff that's in there are things that we've already covered in our previous Wednesday nights. And so this isn't a second law, but really a retelling of the law by Moses. And it's evident by the 250 quotes that we have in the book of Deuteronomy, 250 quotes allusions, references to the first four books that have preceded it, Genesis to Numbers, all right? Now Moses' desire here in the book of Deuteronomy was to really equip this new generation now that's getting ready to move into the promised land. They're not in there yet, right? Remember, they're right on the, on the border of it. They're, they're in Moab and they're right ready to, to take it on. But, you know, he's wanting to equip this new generation now to be ready to move in there. This is exciting times for the nation of Israel as they're there in Moab, just on the other side of the Jordan, ready to take on this land of Canaan that God has said he is giving to them. It's exciting times for a new generation, but it's also bittersweet for the man Moses that's leading, teaching, speaking to the people of Israel. Because you see, he's been the nation's leader all along. I mean, he's been through thick and the thin of it all. He's been through the fire with the people here. He's brought them out of Egypt and bondage. They've wandered through the wilderness now. Moses has been through a lot. He's been the mediator between God and the people, delivering God's law to them. It's been an incredible ride except for one particular episode that we saw last time in the book of Numbers. Remember back in Numbers 20, Moses failed to believe what the Lord could do and what the Lord had ultimately called Moses to do. Moses, the people are thirsty again. Go and speak to the rock and water will flow out. Well, what does Moses do? He grabs his rod like he did the first time that God instructed him to do that in Exodus. And Moses gets mad at the people. He yells at the people in a sense and he strikes the rock twice with his rod when God simply said, speak to the rock. God, or sorry, Moses misrepresented God and he disobeyed God. The very thing, unbelief, that, that caused the whole generation to die in the wilderness. Now Moses becomes a product of that unbelief and now he's kept out from the promised land he would be unable to complete the mission that he started think about that right this new generation entering into canaan to possess it as the lord commanded and for years down the road now moms would be speaking in the ears of their children how their nation came to be how god chose to use moses he gave the law through him a great hero that stood before pharaoh and freed israel from bondage but then perhaps pausing and whispering these parents having to say to the kids, but he was unable to lead us in the promised land. He failed to believe God and disobeyed him. I mean, ouch, that's kind of a sad legacy to have there. 
You see, Moses now, he knows firsthand what disobedience brings and what it can breed. And so not letting an unfortunate ending get him down, what Moses does now in the book of Deuteronomy is he seeks to gather this new generation of people together and give them again a reminder of the law and the importance of obeying the law. He knows firsthand what disobedience leads to. And now he wants to make sure this new crew entering into Canaan are gonna be those that are going to indeed uphold and live out God's word and God's law. So throughout this book, we're gonna see many pleas from Moses for the people to walk in obedience. And he goes through the aspects of the law, the importance of the law, to show the need simply for the obedience of the law. Essentially, the book of Deuteronomy is a, is a series of sermons that Moses is gonna be preaching to the people of Israel, imploring them not to make the same mistake that their fathers did in walking in unbelief and rebellion and disobedience. It's a passionate call for faithfulness to the word of God that was introduced 40 years prior at Mount Sinai. That's what we have here in the book of Deuteronomy. It's an important book for us too because how we need to be reminded always to be those that are walking in faithfulness to God's word and obedience to it because we get tested, we get tempted, we get bombarded with distractions and temptations, but the question stands, are we gonna keep moving forward in trust and belief at God's word? That's what we have before us here today. So here's, uh, again, just a bit of a breakdown that we're gonna see as we go through uh, this book here. First of all, we're gonna see chapters one to four, this historical concerns as Moses looks back. He reviews what they've been through. Then number two, we're gonna see the practical concerns as Moses looks within and again, desires to make sure that the people are, are following in obedience to God's word. This is being lived out in the nation. So practical concerns and application of those things for the present. He's looking at the past, first of all. Then he looks at the present, where they're at. And the number three, prophetical concerns, where Moses begins to look ahead. And, and there we begin to look at chapters 27 to 30, some of the, the blessings and the cursings. And we're gonna see some, again, kind of prophetical statements being given as Moses looks to the future and what they can expect if they walk in obedience or if they walk in disobedience. So we see a review of the past, application for the present, and a looking ahead to the future. And then chapters 31 to 34 will be just personal concerns of Moses as, as he looks up now and, and again just begins to worship God, draws his attention to God. And, and again there we see then just the appointment of Joshua as the new leader. Now like I said earlier, this is a very important book for us today because Deuteronomy, notice this, is referred to or quoted some 350 times in the rest of the Old Testament. It is the biblical book that Jesus most quoted. Of the quotations that Jesus gives of the Old Testament, most of them will be from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, it'll be quoted more than 95 times in the New Testament. So we see there's some real value for us today in the book of Deuteronomy. So let's get into it here. Chapter one opens up with Moses beginning the first of his three messages. And as he directs this new generation to look back on what the previous generation has experienced and what really led to their shortcomings, he begins to just to remind them of these things. Look at verse one. It says this, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel 
on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and, and Dizahab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to, to them. So notice this here. It was how long of a journey from, it says Horeb in verse in verse two, and that's speaking of Mount uh, uh, Sinai, okay? This was the kind of mountain range there, Horeb. So Horeb's there at Mount Sinai. How long of a journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barney, which was the kind of entrance point to the promised land? How long of a journey? 11 days. 11 days. And then what do we read in verse three? In the 40th year. What? was to be an 11-day walk turned into a 40-year wandering in the wilderness. This is not the way it was supposed to go down. Why did it go down that way? Because of what? Unbelief, disobedience, rebellion of the people. And that unbelief, it, it, it morphed into just whining, complaining, and grumbling that ultimately kept them from what God had for them. It's what kept them from the blessings of God. Unbelief, whining, complaining, grumbling. And I think, ooh, man, that hits a little close to home because I can be really good at whining and complaining. I'm very natural at unbelief. And yet, these are the things that kept them out from really entering into the blessings that God had for them. God wanted to give it to them. And, and in 11 days, go on up, let's take it. But yet, it turned into a 40-year wandering. Notice what we read as they skip down to verse 26 of that same chapter, chapter one, verse 26. Nevertheless, it says, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. This is what they began to think. It's all because the Lord hates us. He's just out to get us. He just wants to hurt us. The people viewed God as a God that just wanted to inflict punishment rather than a God that desired to pour out blessing. And so it was because of their rebellion and because of their unbelief that they would be kept from all that God had for them. They died out, it says. This is where unbelief and grumbling will lead for any person. It leads to lifelessness. They died out. Chapters two to four continue on now to remind this new generation of all the things their parents had experienced in the wilderness. Now, things we've covered in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers already. So we're not gonna go through a lot of these chapters, but let me draw your attention to chapter three, verse 10. Chapter three, verse 10 says, um, all the cities of the plain, all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Selka and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan, for only Og... King of Bashan remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length and four cubits its width according to the standard, uh, the standard cubit, which was 
18 inches, the standard cubit. Now, just in case, and I bring that to your attention to say, just in case you thought those spies that went into the land were kind of exaggerating when they said, oh man, yes, this is a land full of milk and honey and, and the fruit is abundant, but there are giants in the land and we appear as grasshoppers before them. Just in case you thought they were exaggerating, well, here's proof that they weren't Og, king of Bashan, which is in the Golan Heights was a remnant of these giants. He had the first king-sized bed. Here it is, he was a king, and it was a king-sized bed. Nine cubits, you know how big that is? That's 13 and a half feet long and, and uh, six feet wide. Man, that's a bed I could handle. I think my wife would like a bed like that. We were just out shopping for beds the other day and uh, gave up our queen-sized bed thinking, we're gonna go for a king-sized now. But this is a king-sized bed I think she could get behind. She would enjoy that very much so but this is a legit one here but as much as the spies understand had reason to fear they more so had a reason to have faith because God knew those guys were in the land God says I'm giving you this land God knows there's Og king of Bashan that sleeps in a 13 and a half feet long bed made of iron he knew those guys were there but God said I want you to go and go by faith in what I'm gonna do. These guys didn't have any reason to come up short. These guys didn't have any reason to have any fear, but when they looked to God, they should have been those that rose up in faith. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, with God, one is always a majority. One is always a majority. Because with God, he changes everything, doesn't he? When we recognize that we have God on our side, it doesn't matter how big the giants are in front of us because we recognize that we have one that is still yet greater, bigger, stronger, mightier. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? But uh, mightier than, than anyone before you or against you. And if God is for you, then indeed, who can be against you? So interesting. Now, the, the intro to this book is really just a review of the things that have taken place, Right? But now in chapters 5 to 26, Moses begins his second message and begins to remind them of how the past should be a lesson to help them put into practice these very laws and truths for the present. He reviews what's gone on in the past, but so they know now how they need to apply these truths in the present. So chapters 5 to 26 is Moses' second message to the people. Chapter 5 begins with a refresher on the law, the, the Ten Commandments specifically. And right in chapter 5, verse 1, Moses says three important things regarding God's word or his law. Look at what it says in chapter 5, verse 1. Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. So what does he say? He says three important things. Hear, learn, and observe. All right? Hear, learn, and observe. Now to hear, it is the avenue that the word gets in. And to learn, it's the way it penetrates to the very heart. To observe is the way that the word gets launched, lived out. And it can't be launched unless it's in our heart. And it can't be in our heart unless we're hearing it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So this is a very important thing that Moses lays out. These are not just random words. It's like, listen, I want you to hear, O Israel, these words that you may learn them, get them into you, 
and be careful to observe them, to live them out now. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. Here's what we read there. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So after going through the law, Moses says that God wrote this on two tablets of stone and he gave them to Moses. That's what he received the first time. Those are going to get broken. He's going to tell Moses to write them down at another time and then those are the ones that get put into the Ark of the Covenant. But understand, God wrote these down on stone tablets. Here's what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2 to 3. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Listen, as we spend a, a lot of time in the law, we have to remember that we have been given the spirit now of the living God to help us live this out. The law really showed everybody God's standard, but it also showed <laughs> their shortcoming, right? That they weren't able to live it out in and of themselves. It showed that we needed someone greater. That's what Jesus comes in to do. He comes in to fulfill the law. He, he paid the, the penalty for our breaking of the law. He brought forgiveness. He brought life. He sent us his Holy Spirit when he ascended to heaven. So now we have the spirit of the living God at work in us, allowing us to live this out now. What a difference Jesus makes. Deuteronomy chapter six. Great passage here. Let's read together Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, uh, verse one to nine. We're gonna read this whole section here. So follow along with me, and it says this. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all the statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse four is where it's key here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Understand here that God had much for his people Israel and again, it was all linked to their obedience. God wanted to bless them. And it's not so much that, that, that keeping his word just brings reward in and of itself, though it does, but Keeping his word also keeps you from the things that will harm you, naturally oftentimes. Now chapter six and verses four to five are well-known passages that's known as the Shema, all right? The Shema, which means to hear. That's what it simply means. And this is recited by Jews every, every day at morning and at evening time. It's the basic confession of faith in Judaism. Interestingly, within this Shema, we see proof of the Trinity. 
which is very interesting because it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, many people will just take it at that and go, well, see, that disproves the Trinity, all right? Elohim is used for God. It's the plural form. So that in itself, Elohim for God, it's the plural form. And in Hebrew, there's two different words used for one. There's the Hebrew word yachid, which is an absolute one, and echad, which is a compound unity, which is like saying my wife and I are one. Be one in a king-sized bed, hopefully, but echad is used in this verse showing God, plural, as a compound unity, the three in one. Now, when rabbis explain this term echad, they hold up one fist and they'll point out this one fist has five fingers to it. It's a compound unity, in other words, right? One God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's an interesting word that is used there in the Hebrew that brings again reference to the Trinity right there in the Shema. And we see here very clearly that we're called to do what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, when Jesus was asked, Hey, Rabbi, what is the greatest of the commandments? The people asked him, kind of trying to trap him, right? What's the greatest of the commandments? Well, Jesus, so, so full of wisdom, right? He, he went to this verse in Deuteronomy. Now, remember, there were 613 rules broken down from God's law. 613 rules. There were negative ones and there were positive ones. 365 negative ones, so that you had like a, a, a negative one for every day of the year, right? Uh, but they're broken down in all these different things. But Jesus summarized it all by saying this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40. He said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus used this because if you follow this, then you really have no problem with the rest right? If you are loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, then, then everything else begins to fall into place. You can't steal. You can't murder. You can't, you can't commit adultery if you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. You wouldn't do those things. This begins to just bring everything into place. It kind of summarizes it all right there. And basically, when summarizing the law, what does Jesus kind of hinge it all on? Love, love. And praise the Lord today that we're not bound by the law, but we're bound by something higher and greater, and that's love. Paul would often talk about the simple law of love that goes so much higher and greater than just the written law that we have. It's a law of love. Now, this doesn't mean that the law is unimportant. It, it's still God's standard of holiness. We understand that there's, there's still something to be said for the, the law of God. I mean, I want that in my life. I don't want to just take that and discard it and say, I don't need to live by that any longer. Thank, thanks for that. No, I still see this as a great standard, but I know I'll never achieve that completely, exactly this side of eternity. I'm going to always fall short. <laughs> I know that very well. I, I can't be righteous by the law, but rather it's by my trust in Christ right? He showed the extent of his love for me by dying for me to bring about my righteousness in him. And now I live out of love for Jesus. It's very interesting that Deuteronomy has been called 
the gospel of love. That word love is used some 22 times in this book. Here's the motive for what God did. It was out of love. Something these people were not clear fully in up until now. This was a new thing to them. To hear about a God that really just kind of loved them in this way. Graham Scroggie said this. Moses, at the close of his life, looked upon a new generation, a new land, a new life, a new leader. And so there was the need for this new revelation of the divine love. Nowhere mentioned until now. Though much illustrated, it's probably true that Deuteronomy is the most spiritual book in the Old Testament. Very interesting. And when God says, you shall love the Lord your God, he's not saying if you feel like loving or when you feel like loving. He says you shall love the Lord your God because the biblical idea of love is not about a feeling, it's about a choice. It's not a noun, it's a verb, something you do, not something you feel. And that's where we get so mixed up in our world and culture today because we view love as something that is all about feelings. Well, when we got married, we really loved each other, but we just kind of fallen out of love. We just kind of grown apart. Well, that's only because of your choice. You choose to love somebody. You, made a, you make a covenant to love somebody. And the more that you choose to say, I'm going to love this person regardless, the more that you're going to feel like loving them. The more that there's going to be a joy in loving them when you commit to loving them. That's the biblical idea of love. And this is not just an intellectual thing. It's to involve every part of us. That's why it says, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, and strength. Every part of you. And with this very core of the law, the people were to do what with it? They were to, verse seven of chapter six, teach them diligently to your children and, and to talk of them. We all have a part to play in sharing God's truth, don't we? Talk openly about these things in your home. It should always be before us. And a more literal translation of this idea to teach them is this idea of repeat it. Repeat it. Say it again, model it again. Keep living it out for others to see and learn from. That's our role as parents. That's our role just in the church. We're to teach these things to our children. We're to be modeling that. We're to be repeating it, continually living it out so that others can learn by it. Whether you have kids here or not, we all have a role to play in just living that out, modeling that, teaching these truths to the generation below us now what the people did is God says bind them as a sign in your hand they shall be as frontless between your eyes write them on the doorposts of your house on your gates well they began to take that very literally again that's not what God had in mind they would make the phylacteries they'd put on their on their arms with a, a box where they put this shema into it they put it upon their their forts in fact you go to israel today and the orthodox jews you'll see walking around still with these things on their fore looks like they're walking around the big gopro on their head but no it's a phylactery it's what this is here the shema on their heads they'll, they'll put the mezuzah up on the doorposts and they will have that there again and, and then remember jesus with the Pharisees, they would want to make the biggest kind of phylacteries, right? They want to put the big things on their forehead to really look spiritual, right? I mean, if they were living in our day, they'd have like LED lights, you know, flashing around it. They'd really draw attention to it because they did everything for show. And Jesus had to call them on it. Say, this is not what we're talking about here. No, you're, you're to 
teaching them. You're to bind them upon your life. You're, everything you do, you're supposed to be doing through that idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's what we're talking about here. Not, not in a physical way, bind them on your, on your uh, wrist or on your forehead between your eyes, but you're to be in everything you're doing, right? Everywhere you're going, you're to be doing it all through and in the Lord God out of love for him. So go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 now. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, verse 11, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Think about this for a second here. God was giving them an incredible blessing that they had no part whatsoever in earning or establishing. All right, don't you love that? Hey, when you come to the land and you have all these things that you didn't do, that you didn't dig, that you didn't build, that you didn't create, when you inherit all these things, beware. Beware what? Lest you forget the Lord. Who was the one that did all of this for you and did it by grace? Isn't that the same that can be said of us? We've been given an immeasurable gift, salvation free of charge. We have lives in Jesus that are blessed beyond measure all by his grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't establish this. We couldn't do anything to gain it. It's been given to us freely. Don't ever get to a place where you think you deserve what you have, because you don't. Don't ever get to a place where you think you deserve something because you've earned it. I'm entitled to this. No. What we have, we thank the Lord for. We live grateful lives because of his graciousness to us. Don't ever get to a place where you think, well, I've earned this, I've done this, I've accomplished this. No, I, I, I can do nothing without Christ. I can do nothing. I have nothing apart from him. So everything I owe to him, I, I give praise to him, I thank him for it. I recognize that without him, I have nothing, I am nothing. So we give it all to him, we, we thank him for it. Don't ever forget. Don't ever get to that place where you become complacent or take God for granted or forget about him. Everything we have is because of him and because of his grace. Let us always be so thankful for the grace that we have in him. God continues to kind of expound on this grace and on this love that he has for his people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter seven now, verse six. Deuteronomy seven, verse six. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. Let me just stop it right there. But because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loves you. That's all. That's why. It's like God saying, don't think you're so special. Because you're not. 
You don't have these things because of what you've done, because you're greater than other nations. I'm not calling you, choosing you, because you're better than everybody else. No, I've done it because of my loving kindness, because of my grace, because of my mercy. And neither did God choose us because of our natural endowments or learned skills. He chose us simply because he loves us. Again, that's his grace and mercy, not our goodness and merit. This is indeed, I think, the gospel of love here, this book of Deuteronomy. Well, Deuteronomy chapter eight, moving along, Deuteronomy eight. You're thinking, how are we ever gonna get through this? We're only in chapter eight, but just you wait and see. Chapter eight, verse one to four. Yeah, no, 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 it won't be. Here's Deuteronomy eight, verse one. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Verse four, your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Again, God reminds his people that these things are being written so that they will remember. And remember what? Remember that the Lord has been so good to them. He's guided them, he's provided for them, he's protected them. He's even made their sandals last. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse five, that even their footwear did not wear out. Listen, 40 years in the wilderness. I can't get my kids to go more than two weeks before a toe is popping through new shoes. And these guys went 40 years without their sandals breaking without their feet swelling. Can you imagine that? I mean, just flying to Israel. We oftentimes have people like, man, feet are swelling up, walking around. They are like, at nighttime, just like putting their feet up, icing those babies, because they are just like balloons on the end of their legs, right? And here they are now for 40 years, and God did not allow their feet to swell, their sandals to wear out, their, their clothes, their garments to begin to wear out. That's amazing but that's the amazing God that we serve. All right. Is there some swollen feet back there? Everybody good? You need some ice? Anybody? You're all good? Okay. You're all good. All right. Perfect. (laughs) So again, God, God doesn't want his people here to really forget the key to their success. It's all just tied to the obedience, their obedience to the law. Now, here now in chapter 10, we have the essence of the law laid out for us. Chapter 10, verse 12. We're going to go there. Here's kind of the essence of the law now. It says in verse 12 of chapter 10, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Let me keep reading. Indeed, Heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Now, there's a number of things here that we're called to put into action. Walk in his ways, right? Verse 12, love him, serve the Lord, 
keep his commandments. But what is at the top of the list there in verse 12? To do what? Somebody? Yeah. Fear who? Fear the Lord your God. Right? That's at the top of the list there. The essence of the law. Now again, every time I bring this up, I feel we always need to remind ourselves that this is not kind of a, a, a sort of fear that we often associate with. Where we're just like in, in terror of God. That's not the idea here. This is not being afraid of God, but this is having an awe and reverence of God. It's the same word for honoring your father and mother. To honor. It's this fear that brings us to a humble submission of a gracious God that brings honor to the Lord. And it's that which leads to blessings. So begins here. We're to fear the Lord. We're to walk in his ways, love him, serve the Lord, keep his commandments. And then we see here how God's desire was again, as he gave circumcision as a sign of the covenant, God's desire was not just about circumcision of the flesh, but rather circumcise the heart. Verse 16 makes that clear. This is what God really desired. Circumcision was really just becoming a picture of how they're to cut away the flesh and how they're to cut away the the, the flesh of the heart and have a spiritual heart beating for the Lord. There'll be more mention of that in Deuteronomy as we go through this here. But now chapters 11 to 26 go through the many various laws and commandments that we've already spent a lot of time in in our other studies here on Wednesday nights, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So we're not going to take a lot of time in these chapters because they're just, again, a repetition of the law. Deuteronomy means the second law. A repetition, a reminder, a refresher of the law. So we're not going to spend a lot of time in it, but let me draw your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 18. So jump over there. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Interesting key passage here Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 the Lord your God it says will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst from your brethren him you shall hear according to all you desire to the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly saying let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die and the Lord said to me What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word? which the Lord has not spoken, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So God here now prophetically speaks of a coming prophet, one like Moses who will lead the people and be a mediator now between God and the people. Now, Notice here, if you've got a, uh, a New King James Bible in verse 15, that word prophet is capitalized. The, the translators had an idea, had insight that this is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Capitalized here. And this coming prophet 
would indeed be speaking of Jesus. That would be the one sent from God to show them the way of life and truth, to speak to them. Acts chapter three is as um, Peter's giving that uh, discourse there, he speaks about how Moses himself spoke of another prophet yet to come and, and Paul, or sorry, Peter's tying that all into Jesus being that one. Now, of course, as people would read through this over the centuries, right? No doubt thinking, oh, God said there's gonna be another prophet that's gonna come. I could really profit off of being one of that or being that prophet. So there'd be many people that I'm sure would stand up and say, hey, everybody, I'm the guy. I'm the one Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 talks about. I'm that prophet, here I am, right? Well, God gives a bit of a, a standard, a litmus test now for testing to see if that person is indeed of the Lord. So the people were to have a couple tests. First of all, if the word spoken was in contradiction to the revealed word of God, then they're a false prophet and they must be put to death. Secondly, if the thing the prophet speaks does not come to pass, then it's not a God. And God says, then you're not to worry about them. You're not to fear them. You're not to, you're not to be afraid of them. Now we have to be careful that we don't run after and believe every word spoken with thus saith the Lord. There's a lot of, uh, of people out there in churches that are simply looking for a, a fresh word, a, a new word. And there's a lot of people that will be more than happy to oblige and say, I've got a word of the Lord for you. Just because someone says, thus saith the Lord, does not mean that you have to take that as a word of the Lord. You need to test that. God says it right here in Deuteronomy 18. You gotta test those things. Just because somebody comes along and says, I'm a prophet. Oftentimes they are just trying to profit off of you and you need to be careful. You need to test those things. And God gives us those standards right here. First of all, they're not gonna contradict the word of God. It's not gonna go beyond outside of what's already been revealed in God's word. Secondly, if they speak something, then they should have some accuracy to it. That's gotta come true. If it doesn't come true, if they've been in the past speaking things and not come true, then you can say, listen, I'm gonna really think twice about what you say here. I'm gonna hold that and give that to the Lord. And oftentimes, what, if somebody comes to you and they've got a word, oftentimes, that word is gonna just simply confirm what the Lord's already doing in your own heart and in your life. But I've seen people just run with a word that somebody has just willy-nilly given them, and they've just taken that as gospel truth. And they've made some big changes, whether it be selling a house, quitting a job, moving somewhere, because they thought that was a word from the Lord. And you need to be careful in those things. And so God makes it clear. You need to be careful in those things. Well, it's interesting too, isn't it, that Jesus said that in the last days, Matthew 24, verse 7, Jesus says to his disciples, in the last days there's going to be many what? False prophets that are going to rise up. Many. They're going to sound like, they're going to sound like they're Christian. They're going to sound like they're spiritual. But they're going to be false prophets. So we need to test James says, test the spirits. Well, as Moses has reviewed the past, his first message, chapters one of four, reviewing of the past, and as he's reminded them now of the regulations for the present, which is his second message, chapter five to 26, we move now to the third and final message as Moses readies them now for the future. Turn, turn to chapter 27. Aren't we, look at that, boom. A few minutes ago, you're thinking, how are we going to do it? And now you're thinking, 
why, why did we do it that way? But that's the way we've chosen to do it. And by we, I mean I. Chapter 27. Uh, <clears throat> Moses says in Deuteronomy 27 that when you enter into the land, and again, as God directs them, chapter 27 states out that as they enter into the land, that God's going to give them, not if you enter, but when you enter into the land, one group is going to go up to Mount Ebal, and they're going to begin to speak out there, and another group is going to go up on a Mount Gerizim, okay? One group on Mount Gerizim is going to pronounce the blessings, and another group is going to go up on Mount Ebal and pronounce curses, and in the middle of these two mountains, there's going to be all the rest of the people that are going to respond to these things with a shout of amen, basically meaning in, uh, so be it. That became like that verbal agreement with the covenant being made. Now, not just that they understood it, but that they were now accepting it and, and accepting even the consequences for disobedience now to it. All right? In chapters 27 and 28, 14 verses describe the blessings. Verse 1 to 14 of chapter 28, all the blessings, but there's 66 verses that show all the cursings. <laughs> Starting in chapter 27, verse 15 to 26, and then now in chapter 28, verses 15 to 68. 14 verses of blessings, 66 verses of curses. Clearly, the thrust was on warning the Israelites of what would happen when they disobeyed. Not if, not if they disobeyed, but when they disobeyed. God knew the, the nature of the human heart. And so God understood and knew what was coming Now, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are situated north and south, respectively, of Shechem. The slopes of these two mountains form a natural amphitheater suitable for this kind of occasion. Israel's history of disobedience and divine discipline was anticipated. It's interesting that Mount Ebal is a very barren mountain, while Gerizim is much more lush and full of vegetation. It's kind of a clear picture and visual demonstration of what life would be like if you walked in disobedience. Mount Ebal, where the curses came from, dry, barren. Garrison, where the blessings came from, lush and, and, and full of vegetation, it's as though God is giving a bit of an illustrated sermon, in a sense, in this for his people. Well, like I said, chapter 28, verse 1 to 14, details all the blessings, all the benefits that come when the people would walk in obedience to God's word and God's law. Chapter 28, verse 15 to 68 now, is the curses for disobedience. Again, it's the curses that are really emphasized. A lot of verses are given to the dangers and harm caused by not walking in faithfulness and obedience. But again, it's a way to really cause people to walk circumspectly and to seek what is right. There was a young man, his name was John, and he received a parrot as a gift. The parrot had a bad attitude and had even a worse vocabulary. Every word of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, laced with profanity. John tried and, ch- and just tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, playing soft music, and anything he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, John was just fed up at this cursing parrot, and he decided to really do some business with it. He started to yell at the parrot. The parrot yelled back. John shook the parrot and the parrot got angrier and even ruder towards John. Well, in desperation, John just threw up his hands, grabbed the bird and put him in the freezer. For a few minutes, the parrot kind of squawked and kicked and screamed. Then suddenly, just total quiet. 
Not a peep was heard for over a minute. Feeling that he had hurt, hurt the parrot, you know, John quickly opened the freezer door to, and, and, and the parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched arms and said to John, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. John was completely stunned at the sudden change in the bird's attitude. As he was about to ask the parrot what had made such a dramatic change in his behavior, the bird spoke up very softly and said, uh, may I ask what the chicken did? <coughs> See, children are often taught by rewards and punishment, right? Rewards and punishment. Here with Israel, still in their infancy, God is doing the same with them. Listen, you're gonna be blessed for what you do, but there will also be consequences for what you do in disobedience. Now we see here in this chapter many things that disobedience brings. Disobedience will trigger distress, disease, disaster, drought, darkness, destruction, and despair. Moses outlines the tragedy that awaits a faithless Israel. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63 specifically here. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 63. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing, and you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul." Amazingly, God was very precise and clear on what they could expect for their disobedience. They would be carried off to foreign lands. God did this repeatedly. It, it, it's very relevant as we've been going through the book of Ezekiel on Sunday morning and seeing that they're sitting in captivity in a foreign nation because of their disobedience to God. So God said, even before they entered the land, if this is what you're gonna do, then this is what you can expect. You'll be taken into foreign nations. That's exactly what, God, what, what happened. And not just once, but multiple times. Under the Assyrian regime, under the Babylonians, it would happen again under the Romans to where they are a, a people that are spread out among the nations, scattered, it says in verse 64, among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. That's what we see today as a reality to what God has said back in Deuteronomy 28. But as we saw in Ezekiel 36, 37, right? God's gonna do a new work and he's gonna bring them back again. This is being seen in part today. Now, one thing we see repeatedly in these chapters are the words, if you, if you will do this, if you will do this. In other words, this is a conditional covenant that God is making with Israel. Now, listen to what Skip Heidzig said. He said this, there's a theological position out there that I want you to be aware of. The position says that all of the promises that God made to Israel are nullified because of their disobedience. They're to be destroyed. They're to be out of the land and they are to perish. All of the promises that God made to Israel now go to the church and there is not literal Israel in the future and no literal thousand year reign in the millennium. 
I'll use one word to sum all that up. Hogwash, he says. Here's why. You have to differentiate the terms of the covenants throughout the Bible. There are covenants, deals that God makes, and sometimes the covenants that God makes are conditional covenants. Sometimes the covenant is an unconditional covenant. If it's, un- if it's conditional, we call that a bilateral covenant. Both parties do something. If it's an unconditional covenant, we call it a unilateral covenant. God makes a declaration, and it doesn't matter what you do or not do. It's unconditional, and he's the one that's going to do it. The first covenant The Edenic covenant or Adamic covenant when God made a covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden, that was a conditional covenant and they blew it and they were kicked out of the garden of Eden. Another covenant that follows that was the Abrahamic covenant which was about the land that God would give Abraham and his descendants, his progeny. That was an unconditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant which is what we have been studying, this is is conditional. God says, if you do this, then I will do that. It was conditional upon their obedience to it but I say all that to say that Israel still has a place in the economy of God because his land is the land of Israel and he's given it to Israel unconditionally he still has plans and a purpose for his people today and in the future and we firmly believe that here that Israel is not put aside that Israel hasn't forfeited all their promises that God has given them and it hasn't been just transferred to the church no the church because we've been grafted in become beneficiaries of that promise but God is still going to do a work in and through his people Israel so now that's summed up for us here in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 4 turn to Deuteronomy 30 verse 4 Here's what we read there. If any of you are driven out to the furthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Isn't that good? This is what we've been covering in Ezekiel 36. This is what Jeremiah 31 speaks about with the new covenant. God says it right here in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that there's coming a time when I'm gonna bring you back and I'm gonna change your heart. I'm gonna take that heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Here he says, I am going to circumcise your heart and you're gonna love the Lord your God finally and fully with all your heart and soul and that's gonna be accomplished because he's gonna impart the Holy Spirit upon them and that is coming at yet a future day as we've been seeing in Ezekiel. That's something that hasn't happened in full today but there will come a time when God will impart his spirit upon them when they will look in repentance to Jesus their Messiah and they will call out to him. They will repent and they will be filled with the spirit and they will come into a new relationship with God as they inherit the land in the millennium will come after the tribulation which God uses in that time to again address the people of Israel as the church is taken out of the way God will use that time now to work on his people Israel to where it ends in the tribulation with them turning in repentance in, in, in whole in full 
and then coming into their land once again and once again in full in the millennial reign of Christ. What a oh, exciting, glorious time that's going to be. Well, chapters 31 to 33 is Moses here taking care of things before he passes on. He commissions Joshua to be Israel's new leader. Chapter 32 is a, a, a interesting chapter. There's some good things in it and there's some negative things in it. Trish read from Deuteronomy 32 today and saw some great encouragement from it. But, but chapter 32, interestingly, is this song that Moses composes as an instruction and reminder for the children of Israel. Because God knew the tendencies and the, the waywardness of, of his people. This song would testify against them and be a witness to them when they turn away from God. All right? This song in, in, in whole is not really a fun one. All right? It's kind of like depressing almost. It's, it, I think you could call it the country song of the Old Testament. All right? Um, but that's what we see in chapter 32. We see some in, in, encouraging things, but mostly Moses is writing to, to kind of let them know what's going to come, what's going to happen for disobedience in the Lord again. Well, chapter 33 is Moses' last address to the people before he dies. The Song of Moses, which he just completed in chapter 32, dealt with severe warnings of disobedience and unfaithfulness and was at times even a little harsh. But here now in chapter 33, the words of Moses are filled with grace and mercy. Here Moses, the last words that he speaks out are filled with just grace and mercy and love for his people here. Just as Jacob even addressed his sons at his death, the tribes of Israel, so Moses will do the same and he'll address the tribes of Israel and just give a word of, uh, of encouragement to them. But it's gonna be a little bit of a contrast from Jacob because Jacob revealed their true character and exposed sin, whereas Moses is gonna speak a blessing to them. And of note, chapter 33, verse 18, look at this here. Chapter 33, verse 18, and end of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountains. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. Well, that's very interesting there. These two tribes occupy territory from the Mediterranean to the Sea of Galilee. And it's pretty amazing in light of what we've seen taking place these past few years with Israel's discovery of massive natural gas and oil reserves. It's pretty incredible that these are kind of recent discoveries to see the kind of treasure that Israel is sitting on. Did Moses speak of that back here in Deuteronomy? Treasures hidden in the sand. It's very likely, very possible. It's very interesting to say the least. Well, chapter 34 records now the death of Moses. And let me read what, what Warren Wearsby said. He said, Moses had prayed that God would repent and allow him to enter the promised land, but God had refused. God knew that Joshua, which means Jehovah's salvation, that he would lead the people into their earthly rest, just as the heavenly Joshua, Jesus Christ, would lead his people into spiritual rest. This is the law, this the law could never do. Moses representing the law. However, Moses did visit the promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah, and he discussed with Christ the exodus or his decease he would accomplish at Jerusalem. 
God permitted Moses to view the land, which is all the law can do when it comes to holy living. The law sets forth a divine standard, but it cannot help us to attain it. Apart from the death of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, we cannot have the righteousness of the law fulfilled in our lives. We can view the land, but never enter it. Those who follow Moses or legalism will never enter the land of blessing. Praise the Lord, my friends, that we have an incredible blessing and inheritance that is given to us in and through Jesus Christ that is fulfilled through the Spirit that we get to walk in the abundance of life and blessing today. Moses, representing the law, could never bring them into the fulfillment, the abundant life that God had for them in the promised land. It took Joshua Jehovah is salvation, Jesus Christ, to lead us in to the abundance of life that God has for us. The law can never do it, but it's found in Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, John would say, but grace and mercy comes through Jesus Christ. And we praise the Lord for that. Well, that's Deuteronomy. And uh, let me wrap us up here in prayer, all right? Well, Lord, we thank you for um, our time, and we thank you that you are just such an awesome God. As we've seen, this book here reference a lot of blessing and cursing. We've also seen it reference just the love that you called us to and the love that we have in you and from you, and we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we're not bound to the law but we're bound to a higher law, and that's the law of love, which is such a blessing. It's not a burden. And I pray that we'll continue to grow in your love and that we'll continue to grow in walking in love and exercising that love because it's love for you that causes us to live out these things. So Lord, keep us from being legalistic. Keep us from trying to be lawful or judgmental on things, but let us just walk in grace, the grace that you have shown us. And Lord, because of that love for us, may we carry these truths out now and live them out. And may we experience the blessing you have for us as a result. So go with us here, strengthen us for these things. May we be a witness of you, Lord. We pray for our weekend this weekend, for our concert. We pray that you would draw many people in, Lord, people that need to hear the gospel, people that need to find life in you, and, and we pray that you would do a great work and that much fruit would come of it, Lord, so just bless that weekend with, with our Bible college students coming here, and, and may they be encouraged, and may the church be encouraged, and we pray for those that are in our fellowship that are, are sick, that are fighting through different things. Um, many come to mind, Lord, and you know them, and we just lift those people up to you, and we pray that you would strengthen them, continue to bring healing to them and encouragement, Lord. Just bless them. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, for all that we have in you. So we pray these things in your name. Amen.